Hi there, welcome to the Matthias J. Barker podcast. My name is Matthias, I'm a psychotherapist from Spokane, Washington, and this is a podcast about mental health and moving towards what's meaningful, even despite hardship. Today we're talking about trauma, and specifically the connection between motivation and trauma, and we'll also be looking at things in the adverse childhood experience research, and, and what that is, just you kind of have a heads up and know where we're going And all this, is the connection between the adverse experiences we had as kids, the trauma we experienced as kids, and the potential health outcomes that could be a result. People were doing a lot of research looking at the correlation between those two things, and there's some really insightful research in that. And so I, I don't want anyone, though, to feel like this is going to be a triggering podcast. That I'm not asking you to bring up any sort of like stories or experiences that you had as a kid outside of the periphery, like checking a box if something did or didn't happen to you. And so uh, you don't really even have to participate in that section of this podcast if you don't want to. Don't feel bad about that. Um, you can just listen to the research in a more almost analytical way, kind of more detached if that doesn't feel completely safe. And if there was a moment in the podcast where you started feeling a little bit uncomfortable or a little nervous, it would be good to take a pause and maybe go on a walk, take some breaths. Um, 30 minutes to an hour is typically a good you know, time if you notice like your heart is racing or you're starting to sweat or you're starting to get really kind of antsy and nervous, you start to feel almost really scared, maybe take an hour and just call a friend and go on a walk. Or if you're just starting to feel your heart race a little bit, just pause and take some breaths, kind of wait to your body to level out again and, and then you'll be in a safe spot to re-engage. So I hope that's helpful. I'm excited about this podcast. This was really, in a lot of ways, the prelude to my trauma workshop because I did this podcast talking about the effects of trauma and had a lot of comments and, and messages of people just saying, okay, that's a lot of great information, but what do I do about it? <laughs> like, what are some things I can do to actually start to untangle how trauma is affecting me? And that was really what I spent my trauma workshop looking into. And that was the topic of that. So you could think of this episode as kind of the prelude to the eventual trauma workshop that I, I would make several months later. And so if that interests you and, and you're thinking about that trauma workshop for yourself, uh, you can go to MatthiasGBarker.com and that'll be there. It's, uh, I think, $49 right now. It's on sale. So you could check that out. Uh, but without further ado, here's trauma and motivation. How do you convince yourself to do something that you don't want to do? If we can figure out that, life would be a lot easier, right? There's been a lot of scientists who put a lot of work into trying to unlock what it means to motivate people. And we use the metaphor of unlock on purpose, right? We're kind of like a padlock. If we just get the numbers just right, then we'd unlock the motivation. And we moralize it in our culture, right? Like we look at people who are really disciplined, who do hard and strenuous things consistently, um, who put off, you know, the impulsive momentary pleasure for long-term gain, who are wise, and we praise their work ethic. Disciplined, mature, good people. Um, we also moralize the negative. If people are lazy or selfish or impulsive or immature, um, we look at that quite negatively. And what I want to talk about is um, how trauma and motivation are connected. And, and when I say that, I, I suspect that for some people watching, there's going to be a wall that kind of goes up like immediately because, because the problem is that um, when you're talking to somebody who is being impulsive or immature or selfish, the first thing they run to is an excuse um, along the lines of, hey, look at all these external things that have pressed me to act in this way. And it's not my fault because of all these outside things. And, and so you should be understanding and give me grace because um, uh, it's not entirely my fault. And, and that's a really frustrating 
rebuttal uh, to get if you're a boss with an employee who always late or if you're a parent with a kid that's not getting good grades or whatever. It's like at some point you just want the person to take personal responsibility. You don't want the person to be looking for all these outside things that might be influencing. You just want them to like try harder and work hard and figure it out. Um, but there's uh, there's often you know for other people watching you know you've you've heard messages like that and that's actually been pretty discouraging because sometimes there are outside um, influences that make things hard and it's not always a matter of just trying harder and not making excuses um, sometimes there's things that need to change in the environment so there's a distinction here that that's worth exploring there's what's the difference between an excuse that is is valid and rooted in trust excuse me, rooted in trauma or rooted in something external, and then what is just like immaturity? I want to explore that a little bit. I want to talk about trauma and how it influences motivation, because I think that's valuable. Um, I work with a lot of kids. About a third of my practice right now is kids. Uh, first year of my career was entirely kids. I was working with kids um, with sexual abuse and maladaptive sexual behavior, kids who experienced a lot of pain. Our team treated everything from human trafficking to pedophilia to... Um, to kids who were assaulting other kids, to kids who experience an assault themselves. And you learn a lot. You learn a lot about abuse. You learn a lot about trauma um, working in an environment like that. But also, you know, now that I'm in private practice, I have a lot of, um, a lot more kids with lower acuity. So kids that come in with ADHD that aren't doing well in school, the kids have anger problems. And what I know that parents often don't know is that trauma and ADHD look very similar. And, um, you have a kid that's hypervigilant, that's easily distractible, that has anger problems, that's not listening, that, you know, is impulsive, and and you think, oh, Adderall, fix that, but there's sometimes a deeper layer that a lot of people will miss. Um, because when you're traumatized, when you've gone through something really significant, you react the same way. And, um, you know, I, I'll talk to parents when they come in, and, and if you're trained to know how to ask certain kinds of questions, you you'll realize that parents will often freely admit to neglect or abuse of their kid. And that might sound a little strange. Yeah, abusers bring their kids into therapy all the time. And they, they often have very little awareness that what they're doing is abusive or what they're doing is neglectful. Because uh, it's not obvious, um, you know, the signs of our own trauma and our own family dysfunction. Um, it's like the water we're swimming in sometimes. And so what I want to do is actually kind of lay out a map for what it what it means to experience trauma um, and maybe like a very practical measure to actually understand if you've experienced childhood trauma yourself and because it's it's not always obvious if you have and it's not always obvious how, how severe and how much weight we should put into the kinds of things that have impacted us and what kind of impact they're having on us as adults or later in our life and so here's what I want you to do I want you to um, pause this video in just a second and I put a link in the description of this video. Um, it's called an ACE score. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. And it's a 10 question quiz um, that just asks you questions about your childhood and will tell you if you've had an adverse childhood experience. And then depending on your score, there's some implications. So go ahead and just pause the video real sec and go take that quiz and come back. Now, if uh, you got a high score, I don't want you to like fret and worry because there's hope at the end of this video because what I'm about to do is share some statistics about what this score can mean and uh, the impacts it can have on you as an adult. But I don't want you to feel like you're doomed or 
like you're just screwed because you had a really terrible childhood. Um, I also don't want you to despair if you feel like you have a really low score and so that means that all my pain is just me whining about it. Like, like I want you to just hold off on making a bunch of conclusions about the score for a second. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna share the implications, the, the statistical data um, in reference to your score, but then I'm gonna explain a little bit further, okay? So just put a pause on all the worry and concern just, just, just for a moment, so. Um, I'm gonna pull up some statistics here. So scientists looked in to try to figure out if there was a correlation between the experiences that people had as kids and the health problems they're having later in life. And they tested this on 17,000 adults in the initial study. There's been lots of studies after this with thousands of more confirming. Um, and here's some of the things that they found. They found that there was a connection between childhood adversities, such as bullying, community violence, death of the parent or guardian, discrimination, or separation from a caregiver to foster care or migration, may also lead to a toxic stress response. The study confirmed that ACEs were associated with higher odds of risky behavior, chronic disease and mental disorders in adults, after controlling for relevant demographic and socioeconomic factors. Experiencing four or more ACEs is associated with significantly increased risk for seven out of 10 of the leading adult causes for death, including heart disease, stroke, cancer, COPD, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and suicide. A score of four or more has a 32% higher likelihood for attention problems, 4.5 times more likely to be depressed, and 12 times more likely to commit suicide. If you have a score of five or more, there's a 10% greater likelihood that you'll have a drug addiction, if you have a score of six or more, lifespans on average are shortened by 20 years. If you had a score of a seven, you have a 51% more likely chance of committing suicide. Other studies have found links between high ACE scores and developing chronic disease, higher obesity, autoimmune disorders or chronic pain. You have a higher likelihood of smoking, you have lower graduation rates, less likely to go to college, lower lifetime median income, higher divorce rates, the list goes on. And uh, like I said at the beginning, it, there's a temptation to be like, crap, I'm screwed, but, but, but wait just a moment, because there's protective factors, there's things that you can incorporate that actually reverse these effects that protect against these negative outcomes. There's also something though that I wanna address where some of you watching might have, have taken that quiz and realize that you actually don't have a high ACE score, but you're experiencing all these negative outcomes or you have these struggles and, and you feel like, well, crap, my pain doesn't matter. Like, I'm just, I'm screwed. Like, apparently I'm just whining because I didn't go through anything traumatic, but, but I wanna just, pause for a moment and there's another thought trail here that might be helpful. Um, there's kind of an emerging field around transgenerational trauma, meaning that the trauma that your grandparents, that your parents endured actually has the potential for a biological imprint onto you and impacts how you interface with your own struggles in life. And this, you know, kind of emerged actually studying Holocaust survivors, so the children of Holocaust survivors in the 1970s and what they were what they found was that children born after World War II who had parents, at least one parent that was a Holocaust survivor, had higher rates of mood disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, attachment issues, um, had, had all these mental health problems, and it was like, what's to make of that? And, and they thought maybe it was parenting style, right? So maybe the parenting style of Holocaust survivors was creating all these issues. And this was in the context, too, of a lot of studies that were being done on rat pups that um, trying to understand attachment and how that correlates to the biology of rats and so like there were studies where they would kind of take um you know the pups of rats and take them away from mom and then reunite them after a time and they're trying to see like okay does the 
distance? Does being removed from mom actually create any biological imprint? And, and what they found actually was interesting. So it wasn't quite that the removal was traumatic, but it was the it was how the pup was received back into the cage by the mother. If, you know, the pup came back and the mom was like licking and grooming and kind of comforting the pup after being reunited, there wasn't um, a traumatic imprint. But for rats that didn't receive that comfort coming back into the cage, um, they actually observed changes in how their DNA encoded. And they were more susceptible to, to, to uh, traumatic events later in, in testing and in their life. So that was interesting. So they thought that like, okay, developmentally, the kind of comfort that a child may receive in the early years of life from their mother has um, a huge impact on how susceptible people are to pain later in life. But what they observed was that the Holocaust survivors actually were pretty involved parents. They were really overprotective, if anything. And they didn't really observe a lot of detachment. And so that was kind of confusing. And that was, um, you know, that was also put alongside this piece of data where they realized that when they tested the blood levels, of the people who had parents who were Holocaust survivors, they found abnormalities in their cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone. And they also found those same abnormalities in people who had a mother with PTSD or mothers who experienced sexual abuse as children. Same abnormality in their cortisol levels. And these studies weren't just done of older adults, these were done of like toddlers. And they controlled for, you know, that the child didn't experience any trauma themselves, but it was, it was really isolated just to the trauma of the parent. I'll put some of those studies below if you want to read about it. All, all this to say, we don't really have enough data to fully say that there's a causal link between a parent experiencing trauma and then that having a direct biological imprint on the child. But we have a lot of these kind of peripheral things that we're trying to kind of put together and we're trying to understand that full connection. So the hypothesis might be, if your parent went through something significant, that that had an impact on you. And, um, and potentially has a large impact on how you interact with your own pain, how you experience motivation, how you experience failure, how you experience rejection. And we certainly know that from attachment theory. So just how you were raised and if, if you had a good or positive connection with your parents, if there was trouble there, those have impacts on you as well. But you don't necessarily have to be traumatized in order to experience these negative outcomes later in life and for that to be valid. Maybe that's my point in saying that. So what are the protective factors? What are the things that actually stave off all these negative outcomes? If this podcast was meaningful for you, hope. you might enjoy my couple's well, workshop. Um, Walla Walla is, about uh, conflict is a town how to here talk in Washington about State. That to I'm about two most. hours east of me, actually. You can find that with Matthias J. Barker. And uh, what they did in the school district was they tried to actually implement the data and, and try to create a curriculum informed by the findings of the ACE scores. And, uh, and they found some crazy results. And so here's what they focused on. They focused on problem solving, connection, and safety. So they focused on what are your abilities to be able to encounter hardship and hard things that are happening in your life, complex problems, and what are the, maybe the skills that you have to interact with these hard things. So things like personal failure, things like uh, failing a test, things like having to try it over and over again, but then having the motivation to keep going, like all, all these different kinds of things. So problem solving, also connection, feeling like you have warmth from the people who are teaching you, like their teachers, the connections that they had to people in authority or leadership. Um, what are the relational skills that these kids had to be able to connect to their peers, but also to connect to authority? So looking at relational skills, looking at also the indwell feeling of safety. Were their threat responses activated when they were being disciplined or punished or corrected in school? Or did they have ways of being able to correct children that didn't activate their threat response? 
they found some crazy stuff. Like when they implemented this curriculum here, I'll show you. They found an 83% drop in suspensions. They found a 40% reduction in expulsions, 75% fewer fights and five times more seniors graduated. Three times more seniors went on to go to college. Nuts. And uh, this was like, this has been actually reforming education across the country with the insights from these A scores because what they're finding is so much of the distractibility, the behavior compliance issues aren't necessarily just rooted in kids being brats. They're rooted in trauma. They're rooted in kids not having the skills available to them to be able to problem solve, establish firm connections, and have an indwell feeling of safety in their environments. And uh, a lot of my clinical practice has been focused on like, I don't know, you, you've seen my videos. Like a lot of my videos are about boundaries. A lot of my videos are about how to forgive people who have betrayed you, how to establish good connection with people that matter to you. And that's on purpose. Um, that's actually a huge focus of my trauma work. And uh, of course there's times that you need to go back into the past. You need to reprocess the things that happened to you. You need to go through that storyline. You need to understand how that impacted you. But also a lot of the groundwork of trauma recovery is in reestablishing connections and building meaningful relationships in your life, how to recognize what a safe and unsafe environment is and how to work in the environment around you to build a safe environment. And, and when I start talking about this, there's, there's an objection that comes up pretty quickly. Like, because it's, it's asking a lot of the person who endured the trauma. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you need to change in all these ways and you need to put effort into all these things and then your life will be better. And, and there's like a, a misunderstanding that kind of comes in when I start talking about all the things that one should do if you've experienced trauma. That's like, hey, that's not fair. Um, and, and that's like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. That you just need to change all these things. You need to develop all these skills and and then your life will be better. And, and people reject that and push against that because that blames the victim. And, and I think that's a complete simplistic, like, I just think it's garbage because, because healing is empowerment. Like healing from trauma is regaining power and not, hold on. Sorry, I'm getting angry. I need to calm down. Um, do you know where the saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps came from? It's a, it dates back to the 1800s. It's a, it was first said in a newspaper. It was, it was a joke. It was, um, so you, normally when you're trying to get over a fence or a wall, like someone reaches down and like pulls you up by hand, right? So they're on the, they're on the other side of the wall. They help pull you up and then you grab onto the edge of the fence and then you pull yourself and you, and you get over the wall. So the joke was there was a guy trying to get over a fence just by pulling himself up by his bootstrap. So the, the idea of trying to lift yourself over a wall, you know, is, is a joke because you can't do that because, you know, gravity. So, um, that, that's the, where the saying came from. It's a saying used for describing an impossible thing. Like you're trying to do something impossible without any outside help. And so whenever people are talking to trauma victims or people who have experienced terrible things, and then they say, hey, you should try X, Y, and Z, and then your life will be better. There's this objection of, hey, that's pull yourself up by your bootstrap mentality. But that's not the case. What I'm saying is you need to reach up and reach your hand up to someone on the other side of the wall so they can pull you up and so you can grab onto the edge of the fence. And then you need to develop your problem solving skills and then understand what a safe environment is and isn't, and then build safety around you. And that's pulling yourself up on this fence and getting over to the other side of the fence. And the other side of the fence could be healing, flourishing. And what I worry some people do, well-intentioned, maybe, 
But what some people do is they're saying like, it's fine being on the other side of the fence. You didn't choose to be on the side of the fence where you're all traumatized. You didn't choose to be in the situation you're in. And, and you don't have to work hard and do all these things because you're, you're fine just the way you are. And it's external events and everything else needs to change around you. We just need to break down this fence. We just need to break down this wall because it wasn't your fault that you replaced her anyway. And, and the truth behind that is like, it's not their fault that they're on the other side of the fence. It's not your fault that you were traumatized and all these terrible things happened to you as a kid. Absolutely. That doesn't change the fact that you need to get over to the other side of the fence. And maybe we need to do some work societally and systemically to break down that wall. Absolutely. But in the meantime, you need to get over the fence. Because sitting here in the wreckage of things that you didn't choose for yourself isn't flourishing. And you don't have to stay there. You can reach up, you can reach out to a counselor, to a mentor, to a church, to, 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 to community, to people around you. You can learn what it means to trust other people and to identify who are trustworthy people and who are not trustworthy people. What does it look like to be vulnerable? What does it look like to be open? Those are skill sets, those are muscles that you can develop over time. And you can pull yourself up into something better. And that's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because it's done in community. It's done with other people around you. It's done as a community effort and it's gonna be difficult. And it's not fair that it's difficult but it's an option and I want that for you. I want you to feel that um, the things that happened to you don't have to determine your fate and that if you press in, if you press into people you love and that might start right now because maybe you don't have a lot of people around you that you love and that you trust so that might just start with a counselor and it might take three to five tries to find someone that you know, is helpful. Not, not everyone knows how to pull someone out of, you know, over a ledge or a fence. Not everyone has the strength to do that or has the right strategy. Um, it might just start with reading a book on trauma. It might just start with watching videos like these and pressing in moment by moment, step by step into something that's more connected, that's more advantageous and efficacious in the world, like you're problem solving better and something that feels more safe. And that's a huge part of healing. And um, motivation changes when you're in a space like that. You'll find that motivation is a lot easier when you feel safe. Motivation is a lot easier when you feel that you're well connected to other people and that you actually have the skills to problem solve in the environments that you're in to create and to create flourishing, to create an environment that, that matters where other people flourish as well as yourself. So, those are my thoughts. Um, I hope you have a great week. If you're ready for the next step, you can find my trauma workshop at MatthiasJBarker.com.